Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, Ontario's finance minister unveils the latest numbers in a fall economic statement, and the deficit is way down. The fight for 15 has paid off in Ontario. The province will raise the minimum wage next year to $15 an hour. Mandatory vaccinations for healthcare workers are not coming to Ontario hospitals. The Ontario Liberals unveil a transit plank in their election platform and saying farewell to Ontario's oldest ever and maybe most beloved Premier. It's Tuesday, November 9th, 2021, so let's get to it. Last week, Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey revealed the latest numbers on the state of the province's books in his fall economic statement. JMM, we were told a year ago that the province might have to borrow more than $30 billion to meet its requirements this year. Turns out, it's going to be closer to $20 billion, so that's encouraging. However, for those who care about these kinds of things, there's still a lot of red ink in sight before Ontario balances its books. Tell us all about it. Uh, these are still uh, historic deficits uh, by, I think, most measures. Uh, and the finance minister did not lay out a, a path to balance uh, in this fall economic statement. Uh Minister Bethlen Falvey insists he will do that in next spring's budget. Um, but, you know, at the moment, at least insofar as we have a planning horizon uh, made public in this uh, fall economic statement, uh, it is uh, deficits for as far as the eyes can see. Uh, that said, uh, despite a you know a really um, awful economic downturn, uh, the revenue for the province actually increased. Uh, so you know thank the the feds and uh, a recovering economy for that. Uh, you know we mentioned this a few weeks ago when the province first provided an update to its quarterly finances, but I, I think it's worth repeating just because it's it's kind of astonishing and weird to me. You know, the pandemic really marks the first time we've had a recession and the province's revenues increased uh, thanks to uh, generous federal supports, uh, both to the province directly and to people and businesses who in turn paid taxes. Now, I guess we should say at this point that you and I spend a lot of time in the weekly On Poly newsletter talking about the financial economic statement, the fall economic statement. So we don't want to repeat all that here. Uh, we can link to that in the show notes if people want to see that conversation. But I would like to pluck one little thing out of the economic statement that we don't talk about over there. And it's clearly not the most important thing in the economic statement. But I noticed that for the third time, the government has introduced this so-called staycation tax credit, <laughs> where you can take your vacation in the province of Ontario, keep your receipts, and you'll get a tax break from the government. But as I say, they've introduced this three times already. But now they say it may finally go into effect in January. Yes? That is what they're saying. Uh, you know, we've talked about this this policy, at least as a, a notion <laughs> before. Uh, it is meant to encourage Ontarians uh, not to uh, head to uh, warmer climates. Uh, it comes into effect on January 1st. So uh, if you're going to take a January vacation, the province would prefer that you stay in Ontario instead of going somewhere sunnier. Uh, your decisions are up to you. <laughs> <laughs> um 
you know, it, it is a bit of an example of, you know, this kind of communication that uh, governments do, where you announce something and you get the benefit of the first announcement. And uh, then they announce it again, saying, hey, no, no, seriously, it's coming. <laughs> and uh, then it still somehow doesn't materialize. And then they announce it again. Uh, and maybe this time, it's really going to happen. Uh, you know, they get three uh, three bites at the apple as far as media coverage goes. And, uh, you know, I suppose, you know, you and I are a bit playing into this strategy by discussing it here. Uh, but it is also, I think, something that, you know, reporters are keenly aware of that uh, maybe our listeners aren't necessarily. Right on. All right, let's move to the labor file. It's been called the Fight for 15 for many years, the campaign to make $15 the new benchmark for Ontario's minimum wage. Last week, in a rather surprising 180, Premier Doug Ford and several cabinet ministers announced that the minimum wage would, in fact, rise to $15 an hour in the new year. The effect of this is to give more than 700,000 Ontarians a raise. But, JMM, the politics of this is really quite breathtaking. It, yeah, breathtaking is the right word. Uh, our listeners may remember that uh, in 2018, when the Ford government was elected, uh, they uh, inherited uh, a law that said the minimum wage was going to increase to $15 an hour. Uh, they repealed that law, uh, left the minimum wage at $14 an hour, but they did allow for some inflationary increases. Uh they have now said, actually, $15 an hour sounds good. Uh, there will be uh, still be inflationary increases to that $15 an hour. Uh, and uh, really, I, I think this uh, is, is larger almost than the increase to $15 an hour. Uh, they're getting rid of the tipped minimum wage for liquor servers. Uh, that to me, I mean, if you've ever known a, a, a server, or waiter, waitress, host, anybody who serves alcohol uh, gets uh, is not legally entitled to a minimum wage that is as high as the general minimum wage. Uh, that will end in Ontario uh, on January 1st. And I know that is something that a lot of labor advocates were also calling for. Um, the business not, you know, super in love with this announcement. Uh, they are still getting over uh, the economic effects of COVID. Uh, you know, restaurants really aren't seeing the, the the traffic at their tables recover as quickly as they'd hoped. Uh, and starting January 1st, uh, they are going to have to uh, start paying more in wages. Um, you know, we'll see whether this encourages people to come back to these positions, because of course, these restaurants have also had a hard time finding workers. Um, I can't help but note that uh, there's a precedent here, as there is in so much of provincial politics. Uh, Ford uh, is doing a, a pretty dramatic about face, but uh, his predecessor, Kathleen Wynne, uh, you know, made a, a pretty substantial change in her own approach to the minimum wage uh, on about the same timeline, about three or four years between. Uh, back in 2014, just before the 2014 election, uh, the Liberals announced that uh, they were going to uh, raise the minimum wage, but not as much as activists wanted it to, uh, and they were going to uh, peg it to inflationary increases. Uh, that was new in Ontario. Uh, before that, the minimum wage only went up every time MPPs decided to vote on it. Uh, there wasn't an automatic inflationary increase. And then in 2017, uh, Wynn and the Liberals announced that actually, you know what, 15 sounds good, we're going to go to 14 first, and then after the 2018 election, it was scheduled to go to 15. Again, the Liberals did not win re-election, uh, nor did the NDP. So the uh, Liberals did not win uh, the 2018 election, nor did the NDP. So that $15 an hour minimum wage never happened uh, on that timeline. Uh, but it looks like it's going to happen now. 
Now, you like my use of the word breathtaking to describe some of the politics around all this. And I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm not finished with the breathtaking politics <laughs> around all this because there were several speeches given by both cabinet ministers and union leaders at the event last week. And I just want to play a snippet of part of the speech given by a guy they call Smokey. His real name's Warren Thomas. He's called Smokey Thomas. He's the head of OPSU, the Ontario Public Servants Employees Union. And here's one thing he had to say about the new $15 minimum wage. Uh, do you know do working people have everything we want no but you know for the first time in dealing with three governments we actually have a government that is listening and actually doing some very positive things for working people jmm i don't know this for sure but given that former premier kathleen Wynne four years ago had already announced her intention to move the minimum wage to 15 dollars an hour if she heard Smokey say this i'm sure her response would be what is Smokey smoking <laughs> I think it's fair to say that Smokey Thomas has been a, a thorn in the side of multiple governments now, uh, but it's a rare trick to antagonize a government that's not even a government anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, to your point, Steve, the this Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives released an estimate on Monday of this week saying that the three years between when the minimum wage would have gone up to $15 an hour and when it actually will in 2022, uh, that amounts to about between uh, $3,000 and $6,000 in lost revenue for minimum wage workers. So that's something you can expect to hear the Liberals, you know, make that point repeatedly, probably, uh, in coming months. Certainly, you can imagine a lot of Liberals were irritated to hear Thomas say what he did last week. Uh, but a few I've spoken to since are, you know, consoling themselves with a joke or two about how, you know, actually Doug Ford agrees with Kathleen Wynne on the minimum wage now. It just took him a while. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Let's move to health care, where the government had a very tough decision to make this past week on whether to force people working in the healthcare sector to be vaccinated. Uh, you know, JMM, 90-10 issues are easy decisions for governments to make. This one is a lot closer to 5149. And by that, I mean there are honorable people on both sides making strong, solid arguments. The opposition parties have said they would enforce mandatory vaccinations for healthcare workers or fire those that refuse. The government, however, has come to a different conclusion on this. What did they decide? The government has decided to uh, leave these decisions up to the individual hospitals. Uh, they will not require it uh, as you know a condition of the of Ontario law. Uh, they were afraid uh, of the prospect of uh, thousands of healthcare workers uh, either. Uh, quitting or being fired uh, and and leaving the system even more stressed and uh, short of labor uh, than it already is. Uh, you know, in most hospitals, uh, they have seen only a few percent of healthcare workers who haven't been vaccinated and, and who have, um, you know, opted for serial testing instead. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> the healthcare workforce is incredibly large, so even one or two percent of that is is potentially thousands of people, uh, and you know even uh, again this is you know the government's justification for it. Uh, even if the the numbers are small from a province wide uh, perspective, uh, in some particular settings, maybe uh, a specific hospital doesn't have a very high vaccination rate. Uh, you could have a a, a, a real uh, if not a disaster, then certainly more difficulty than anybody wants, again, in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so the province is leaving it to hospital administrators to sort out on their own. And in fact, last month, the Ontario Hospital Association wrote to the government saying that 120 of its 141 member hospitals endorsed a province-wide mandate. So this decision by the government puts the onus back on the hospitals to make the decision for themselves. 
And what has the response been from them? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a bit of a, you know, toss the political hot potato back and forth. Um, the uh, CEO of the Ontario Hospital Association, uh, Anthony Dale, uh, says that, uh, you know, some hospital CEOs have been receiving death threats over their uh, vaccine mandates. Of course, uh, you know, you gave that number of 120 hospitals. Some hospitals who were not part of that joint uh, endorsement also separately endorsed the idea of a mandate. So I think it's fair to say that the the very very large majority of Ontario's hospitals, uh, you know, wanted the government to be the bad guy, for lack of a better word. You know, be and we saw this with restaurants too, right? When when restaurants were trying to uh, figure out how to open safely, one of the things they asked for was, you know, clarity and a, a uniform approach from the government. And restaurants eventually got that with a vaccine passport. Uh, hospitals have not gotten that uh, so far on their own. On to transportation. For a few years, everybody in provincial politics had to have a transit plan for the greater Toronto area. Last week's fall economic statement is no exception, and it includes billions of dollars in planned transit spending. But the finance minister also made it official. The current government is also committed to two new highway projects in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area, the so-called Highway 413 that goes from York Region through Peel, and the Bradford Bypass, which would connect two existing 400 series highways north of Toronto. Now, since this was in the finance minister's speech... I assume, John Michael, we got a price tag for these two projects, yes? <laughs> no, we did not. Uh, the government says the costs will be made clear eventually uh, after procurement uh, has, has advanced further, uh, but it is too early to say right now. Uh, preliminary work still needs to be done. And in fact, uh, both projects are both still in such early stages that this is very much something that will be up to voters in the election next year. Uh, neither project will be so far along that they can't be killed by a new government. Well, and I think the then transportation minister and the Kathleen Wynne government, Stephen Del Duca, now the leader of the Liberals, I think he actually did try to kill this once upon a time, <laughs> but it has come back again. And uh, I guess if he gets the chance to be premier again sometime in the future, he can kill it again. All the opposition parties have been very clear they would cancel the 413, right? There's some unanimity among the opposition parties on uh, that highway, at least, but there is disagreement on the Bradford bypass. Uh, NDP leader Andrew Horvath and Green Party leader Mike Schreiner have both said they oppose the bypass, uh, which would run in part through uh, some of the province's sensitive agricultural lands in the Holland Marsh. Uh, but Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca says the bypass has uh, a lot more local support than the 413, and he is willing to consider it if he forms government next year. Uh, a little bit of interesting politics there. He's, he's trying to split the difference bit, uh, perhaps maybe blunt the Tory charge that the opposition parties are only saying no. Mm -hmm. Now, that's highways. Um, we did talk about transit earlier. Has transit been forgotten in the <laughs> fall economic statement? No, this this was really interesting to me. Uh, you know, the province is spending really huge sums on transit at the same time as it is spending money on highways, uh, much more on transit, actually. Uh, over the 10 years of the province's capital plan, they are looking to spend about $3 on transit for every $1 they spend on highways. Uh, this is a, a really huge shift in provincial spending that has happened uh, in about a decade. Uh, I first got to Queen's Park in 2013, and at that point, the province was spending about the same amount of money on highways as it was on transit. And, and that was considered a really big win for transit activists at the time. Uh, these days, there is a real sort of cross-party consensus for spending huge sums of money on transit building, at least in the province's big cities. Um, 
speaking of transit, uh, we mentioned uh, Stephen Del Duca. Uh, he announced this week that his party, if elected next year, would match a federal money commitment to make two-way all-day-go service on the Milton Line happen. Uh, that's in the, the western uh, Greater Toronto and Hamilton area. Uh, it's a train line that's kind of unique in the GO system these days because Metrolinx doesn't actually own the tracks. It, it basically rents access to the tracks from the Canadian Pacific Railway. Uh, so while increasing GO service on other lines is something the government is already doing, the Milton Line poses a, a challenge and probably an expensive one. Del Duca knows that because he was transportation minister under Wynne, as we've described. Uh, did he name a dollar figure for all of this? Uh, No, he did not, any more than the finance minister did for those highways we talked about. Um, He says he will match whatever the feds come to the table with. Uh, So (laughs) lots of ambiguous dollar promises going around these days. Uh, But I thought it was an interesting announcement in part because I think Del Duca showed us a bit about how he'll be positioning his party in the spring, uh, opposing the 413 as a a wasteful or even useless project, uh, while promising that the Liberals will deliver other improvements to improve uh, people's commutes. As long as we're talking about Go Transit, let me take a 20-second jaunt down memory lane to point out that we got Go Transit because the government of John Robarts brought it in uh, way back in the day. And John Robarts became what was then called the Prime Minister of Ontario 60 years ago yesterday, November 8th, 1961. He became the Premier. Well, it was called Prime Minister of Ontario. Bill Davis (laughs) changed it to Premier, but there you go. You wonder where these things come from? Somebody actually had to decide to make them happen once upon a time, and it was the Robarts government that made it happen. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We always like your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now is my quote of the week. There was a memorial service last Thursday at Roy Thompson Hall in Toronto for former Ontario Premier Bill Davis. Our 18th Premier died last August at age 92, making him the oldest ex-Premier ever. Mr. Davis was Premier of Ontario from 1971 to 85. He won four straight elections, and he worked with the current Prime Minister's father to repatriate the Constitution with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms back in the early 1980s. The current Mayor of Ontario's capital city, John Tory, spoke of his admiration and, yes, love for former Premier Davis. There are two people that I have tried to model myself after in my life my father, and Premier Davis. I apologize to his family for any misunderstandings that might arise on days when I do unpopular things, and people hear me say I'm modeling myself after Bill Davis. (laughs) For any of us to be able to consistently represent the kind of decency and balance and humanity and humility that he did would be a monumental personal achievement. I'm not sure anyone could do it as he did. Mayor John Tory on his mentor, his friend, and his political idol, Bill Davis, last Thursday at Thompson Hall. Uh, my quote of the week is actually uh, from Stephen Del Duca. We have mentioned him a few times uh, in this podcast, and uh, Steve mentioned uh, what liberals might be thinking uh, when they hear Smokey Thomas praise the current government. Uh, and a, a certain Ontario political reporter asked Stephen Del Duca exactly that question last week. A guy by the name of um, Steve Pakin, I believe. Never heard of him. <laughs> Never heard of him. Uh, anyway, uh, this was Stephen Del Duca's response last week. But given that you guys actually did bring in the $15 when you were in power, and I mean, I know you don't have any hair to pull out, but how are you not pulling out whatever's left 
when he said, finally, we have a government of the last three that listens to us. How are you not outraged by that comment? Well, because outrage doesn't do anybody any good. You know, like you, I know you, you probably have heard you, if you didn't watch it closely and maybe you did my AGM speech a couple of weeks ago, getting outraged, yelling and screaming, uh, the endless fighting with one another, the divisiveness that doesn't that doesn't make life better for my daughters. It doesn't shrink their class sizes or give us a real plan for climate change or build true economic dignity. I respect Smokey. I respect the rest of the labor leaders in this province who have a job to do. I know that if I'm elected premier in the spring, Steve, I won't always be on the same page as every single labor leader. We will have differences of opinion, and that's part of what's supposed to take place in our system. That's liberal leader Stephen Del Duca explaining why uh, outrage is not terribly helpful when you're trying to win in politics. Was the was the question too cheeky, JMM? You can tell me. Be blunt. Uh, look, as a guy whose hairline is also receding, I didn't appreciate the crack about Mr. Del Duca's hair. I'll so- say that much. <laughs> okay. Apologies to you both then. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Katie O'Connor, editing from Matthew O'Mara, production support from Jonathan Hallowell, Albert Wisco, and Carla Lucetta. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs>